Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Take Home Reading, a new audio series from the Wheeler Centre. In each episode, we'll be speaking to an Australian writer about their latest book and hearing a reading from it. This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders, past and present. We pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of all lands this broadcast reaches. I'm Stella Charles and I work in the programming team at the Wheeler Centre. Usually I host our monthly reading series, The Next Big Thing, but since we haven't been able to gather together for a few months now, we thought we'd bring these readings to you instead. Today I'm talking to Imbi Nimi. Imbi is a recovering blogger, novelist and short story writer. She was highly commended in the 2015 Victorian Premier's Award for an unpublished manuscript, shortlisted for the Peter Carey Short Story Award, and has won prizes in the Newcastle Short Story Awards and the Vundara Literary Awards. Imbi's debut novel, and the focus of our conversation, is The Spill, published in June by Penguin Random House after being awarded the 2019 Penguin Literary Prize. Hi, Imbi. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Stella. Uh, can you start by telling us a little bit about your book, The Spill? Ah, The Spill. Um, this is uh, a great opportunity for me to trot out my elevator pitch, which I've given now approximately 10,000 times. But um, when people ask me, you know, what is it about? I say, oh, here we go. Here we go. We ha- and, and I always try to get people to pretend they're in an elevator. So, you know, maybe do, 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 do. Um, so that the elevator pitch is um, no two people ever experience or remember the same thing in the same way, especially when they're sisters. So at its heart, it's about um, two sisters who um, we meet in sort of the present day, although not 2020 present day. Um, uh, Their mother has just passed away um, and they are ostensibly estranged from each other. And... um, and and at the at the at the heart of the novel is this accident that they were in when they were young girls, where their mother was driving, and there's a bit of a question mark about whether or not she was drunk at the time of the accident. And no one's particularly hurt in that accident, but the impact of it is felt for decades afterwards. And so, you know, we we explore more of these sisters' past, um, their shared and sometimes quite separate pasts, um, and and over time we become come to understand a little bit more of how they've become who they are. That's a great, great elevator pitch. Well done. <laughs> well, the, the, the only the, the very first line was the actual elevator pitch because, let's face it, like I think if I talked for that long in an elevator, people would be like pressing buttons to get out, like let me out. But, yes, yes. So, yes, that's that's what The Spill is about. The Spill won the 2019 Penguin Literary Prize. Congratulations. Thank you. You've been um, highly commended for the Victorian Premier's Unpublished Manuscript Awards in the past for a different manuscript. How important are these prizes for you in terms of motivating you to finish and share your work? They're really important and um, not only because they create a hard deadline for me and that I find is really important um, to have something to work towards. Um, I'm not good at kind of writing into a void. I, I'm a very kind of structured person. I'm an administrator by day, you know, um, so that's my day job. And um, so I, I, I like to kind of to work within a very clear structure um, or schedule. Um, but also uh, as a student at school and at university, I was a complete SWAT and I, I, 
I always, you know, striving for an A or an A plus. So, so prizes for me are like a way of getting an A as an adult because really in adult life there are precious few A's. No one gives you report cards. So for, for me to win the Penguin Literary Prize was like the biggest A I'd ever received and like such a huge thrill and so unexpected, like completely unexpected. So I still smile when I think about it. It This novel, I can... I can see why it won. It's it's really special. It it strikes a real balance between um, the messiness and pain of everyday life, but it's also darkly funny. Your dialogue in particular, I think, really jumps off the page. How, how did you approach striking that balance and how big a role did the dialogue play in fleshing out these really complex characters? Dialogue for me is everything. Um, I'm I'm a theatre brat, so I grew up in the theatre. I spent my youth like hanging out in rehearsal rooms um, while my dad and my mother and then my stepmother um, worked. And so I guess um, so. Yeah, effectively, um, I went. You know, my early drafts. I like play scripts. You know, there's very little description. There's just a lot of dialogue, and I. I, I'm, I'm also one of those people who uh, listens in on other people's conversations all the time and just, just love, love what I can glean from other people's conversations. So, yes, that's always my starting point is dialogue. Um, and, yeah, it is that balance between the dark and the light, I, I, I feel like for me to have one without the other is, yeah, it's just I... I, I I'm always looking for the moments of humour, even in the darkest of times. But also, even when I'm having a really great time, that sort of melancholy kind of can't help but you know bubble up to to, to the the surface. So I guess it's a reflection of how I live my life. The structure of this bill allows you to sort of explore this idea of memory that you touched on in the elevator pitch, and how um, our recollections of the same event often diverge, um, particularly in families. This book doesn't have a linear narrative. It's narrated from multiple first and third person perspectives. Was this a decision that you made really early on or did it change over the course of drafting? Um, it was a decision I made from the outset. I, I just really was fascinated in that gap between experience and memory and particularly with that divergence, as you said, between um, family members. I mean, we all have those stories in our families that we tell but you know sometimes if you scratch away at those you'll find that there's this whole other side to that story that everybody's kind of you know is the music family anecdote which is actually a really painful memory for someone so um yeah I, I really wanted to explore that and initially um the whole book was actually written in the third person and um my beta readers were confused maybe even angry <laughs> Um, and and they um, so I, I, I did did work a lot on on kind of by changing that sort of present day um, narrative to the first person to try and kind of help the reader. I do ask a lot of the reader, but I, I'm hoping that you know um, it pays off because I think you you do um, you do kind of really get a sense of how these two women have become. Have, have come to live their lives so separately from each other. Um, um, you, you, they're frustrating characters. I'm not going to pretend, and I know that some readers are like, oh, I didn't like anyone in this book, but I do like these characters a lot, and I, I like to think that I've kind of been quite generous with them and given them some space to kind of be um, 
be be human and all that entails all the good and bad stuff. I mean, nobody is entirely likable. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have many unlikable parts to my personality. We won't we won't list them here for your audience, but um, but yeah, I think I think sort of this idea of likable characters is really problematic because um, it 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 really it's it's not. I don't think it's human to be likable all the time. No, I completely agree. Yeah, I feel like like we get very caught up on this idea that that a character isn't relatable unless they're likable, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Are there any other um, writers or work that influenced the spill for you, like your your style or kind of the themes that you're trying to address? Um, I think I think I um look when I'm writing, I'm really I'm a terrible reader because. I have a really busy life. I've got five teenagers in my household, um, various pets, um, and you know, a day job. So I, if it becomes a choice between writing and reading, I'll always go with writing. But um, I, I'm, I'm trying to be a better global citizen in terms of the writing community and, and reading more because it's actually very good for your own practice. I mean, incredibly good. But I think if I was going to choose a book that had influenced the spill, it'd probably be David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, which is just an all-time favourite of mine. And the thing that I love the most about that book is the lightness. He's so light-handed in the way that he links those different narratives together. He he leaves so much space there for the reader to do some work. And I just felt really empowered by that as a reader and and maybe that kind of was an influence on, you know, how much I actually asked of my own readers. But, yes, yes, Cloud Atlas, there we go. Have you been able to read over the last few months in isolation? Like, is there anything that you've found sort of distracting or comforting? Or is that just out of the oh, question with everything that you're juggling? No, um, I actually have been reading much more in lockdown. Initially not because it was hard to focus on anything for those first couple of weeks in lockdown one. Um, but certainly, you know, once once you kind of I got a grasp on what was happening, um, and then sort of thinking of how it was impacting various sort of um, people around me, I started to feel like I really wanted to support as many debut writers like myself in, in Australia and particularly in Melbourne. So, you know, I've read um, Twee On's Turbulence. I've read um, uh, uh, Kirsten Kraft's uh, Almost a Mirror. I'm halfway through Jesse Chu's um, A Lonely Girl's a Dangerous Thing. I've got Kokomo next on my list. Um, I read Anna Downs' A Safe Place, um, Christine Bell's No Small Shame. I've been just, you know, uh, Rose Hartley's Maggie's Going Nowhere, like I, uh, uh, Ronnie Scott's um, The Adversary. I mean, all great books. And I just, I feel like the biggest frustration for us as debut writers is, A, we're, you know, particularly with me, I've waited a long time for this, but this sort of um, this worry that our books are not going to find their readers. So whatever I can do to help these fellow debut writers. So, you know, I'm just constantly recommending their books to other people if I feel like it's a good fit um, to, to help that book find its reader. Yeah, that's amazing. So. I think that's been a silver lining is to kind of see that writing community um, come out in support of each other. And, and um, no, it's really been quite moving over this time, I think. I'd love for you to read an extract from The Spill for us. Is there anything you'd like to say before you read to sort of set up the extract? Yes, I feel like it, you know, it's like the, you know, the page at the beginning of a, um, a Tolstoy book where you have the list of characters. Um, so, so we have Nicole and Samantha who are the two sisters. Um, 
the um they have, their mother is Tina, um, their father is Craig, and in this chapter, uh, Craig has has moved on to his second wife, who's Donna Louise. Um, and this this chapter is told from Nicole's perspective. It's at Samantha's wedding to a man called Trent. That's a lot of characters, but um, I, I, I have great faith in your listeners. Um, so, yes, so it's piece number three. Okay. Bride or groom, the usher asked Nicole and Tina. Neither, Tina said with a wink. I'm not getting married. Sorry? Bride, Nicole stepped in to clarify, and the usher duly directed them to the left-hand side of the church. For someone in such a hideous suit, he really lacked a sense of humour, Tina said as she settled in a pew near the back. Nicole hesitated. Don't, don't you want to sit close to the front? What? Near your father and Donna Louise? Fair enough, Nicole said, sitting next to her. As she did, she took care to smooth out the back of her angel heart's floral dress and adjust the perfecto biker leather jacket she'd bought from Orphans. The jacket was the most expensive item of clothing she'd ever bought in her 25 years on the planet, and she wanted it to look its best at all times. Troy doesn't look well, even at this distance, Tina observed. You mean Trent. Who's Trent? Tina joked. Tina was right. Trent really didn't look well. Patchel Bell's Canon and D had started up, and he was standing at the front of the church, all pale and blinking, as the bridesmaids, who were wearing butter yellow dresses, made their way down the aisle. His face is the same colour as their dresses, Nicole whispered to Tina. I bet you're glad you decided not to be in the bridal party, Tina whispered back, and Nicole nodded. Tina didn't know that Samantha hadn't even asked Nicole to be in the bridal party, but now wasn't the time to explain. Not that Nicole was upset about it. Not really. Well, not much. The music changed to Mendelssohn's wedding march and Tina swiveled around in her seat. Oh my, she looks beautiful. Nicole turned too. There was Samantha on Craig's arm in all her white meringued glory. Nicole wanted to catch her eye, but Samantha's gaze was fixed straight ahead on her future husband. My baby, Tina said, and her eyes filled with tears. Nicole took her hand and squeezed it tight. When they reached the front of the church, Craig handed his daughter over to Trent and sat down next to a large yellow feathered hat that Nicole could only assume was Donna Louise. Looks like Donna Louise has come dressed as Big Bird, Tina said, her tears now gone, and Nicole felt glad she hadn't insisted that they sit closer to the front. After the ceremony, while everyone milled around on the steps of the church, Tina pulled Nicole aside. Nick, I'm not feeling the best. I think I might give the reception a miss and go home. Nicole was confused. Tina had seemed perfectly healthy during the ceremony. You sure, Mum? Trent's mum might have a Panadol. No, darling, I, th I think I just need to have a lie down, Tina replied, a faint tremolo in her voice. Well, let me at least call you a cab. Nicole was now worried. She pulled out her Motorola out of her pan bag. No, 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 I'll just I'll hail one on Beaufort Street, Tina insisted. Please tell Sammy and Troy I'm sorry and that I hope they have a lovely day. Nicole went to argue, but one of Trent's brothers spotted her and came over to shake her hand. By the time she was able to turn around again, Tina had gone. Family of the bride, the photographer shouted. Nicole found herself being swallowed by the crowd and spat out at the foot of the church steps. She took a deep breath and walked up to join Samantha and Trent. Sammy, you look beautiful, she said. Samantha gave the same pinched smile she always gave when she was wearing expensive lipstick. Thanks, Nick. 
Listen, Mum felt sick and had to go, Nicole told her in a low voice, but, but she sends all her love. Samantha didn't even blink. We've seated you next to that guy Darren I was telling you about, she whispered back. You know, the guy from Trent's work. He's single at the moment. Nicole stared at her. Did you hear what I said about Mum? Yes, I heard, Samantha said, her attention now on Craig and Donna Louise, who were climbing the steps towards them. Congratulations, darling, Craig said, kissing Samantha's cheek. Father of the bride, stand here, the photographer pointed to a spot next to Trent. And you must be the mother, she said to Donna Louise. Nobody corrected her. You stand here on the other side of your lovely daughter. Hello, Nicole, Donna Louise said as she stepped in between Samantha and Nicole, her yellow feathers poking Nicole in the neck. You the sister, the photographer asked Nicole. You're even taller than they said. Do you mind going down a step? Nicole's cheeks grew hot as she did what she was told. When she'd put on her wedding outfit that morning, she'd felt elegant and pretty. Now she felt like Andre the Giant. Great. Okay, family of the bride, say cheese, the photographer barked, and everyone smiled, except Nicole. Thank you so much, Jimmy. That was great. <laughs> You've been listening to Take Home Reading, a Wheeler Centre audio series. That was Imbi Nimi reading from her debut novel, The Spill. It's published by Penguin Random House and available now. Please shop local and support new Australian work. We'll be back soon with another episode of Take Home Reading. Until then, visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne, Australia and the world.